Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1382, with guest Steve Smith, recorded Thursday, November 3rd, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Steve Smith is here. We're going to continue a conversation we were having in Las Vegas with him about business anti-patterns. <laughs> um, a great, great conversation, and it should be a lot of fun. Uh, what can I say, man? Things are, things are going well here in Connecticut. It's, we got, we're having a little bit of a, a warm spell. That's nice. Fall. You know, because yeah. you guys get, well, especially where you live, that hill gets some serious snow. Yeah, but, and then right down at the bottom of the hill, it doesn't, you know? Right. It's sort of like on the coast and in the mountains at the same time. Yeah, you're right really, on the threshold there. Really funny, but it's great. I'm really enjoying it, and uh, what can I say? That's about it. Not much happening, no small talk. All is well. All is well. Let's roll the music. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Well, a little while ago, there was, uh, uh, in Better Know Framework land, there was a list of free ebooks out there. And it turns out O'Reilly has their own list of free books that you can get. And if you go to 1382.pwop.me, you'll see this list of free programming ebooks just from O'Reilly. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. And Java, Python, a lot of Python books. Other. <laughs> Other. <laughs> Not Java or Python. Open source software architecture, etc., Including a Swift pocket reference. That's nice. pretty cool. Yeah, this is cool. There's a lot of books here. Hadoop with Python. Object-oriented versus functional programming. Yeah, there's some good stuff there. So I was going to make a Python joke, but I didn't have enough parentheses. Ah, you're funny. <laughs> All right, that's what I got. Awesome. Who's, who's talking to us, Richard? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1340, which is the last show, Steve Smith, just about 40 or so shows ago, which was uh, the patterns and any patterns conversation that led into the software craftsmanship calendar, which we've done for many years. Was that really 40 shows ago? 40 shows ago. Oh, my, my God. Friend. It seems like yesterday. It just looked yesterday. Well, because it is, you know, we make a lot of shows a week, so yeah. <laughs> it goes by <laughs> fast. It was in August. Only wow. in August. This is one of the shortest comments I've ever read, but that's because it's perfect and beautiful in every way. Okay. This is from Roland Tepp, 
who says, Anemic joke anti-pattern. It has all the structure of a joke, but none of the behavior. Oh! (laughs) It's so beautiful. It's just, I stared at it, and I stared at it, and I'm like, that's perfect. It's perfect. It would be only better if it was in haiku form, which is very close. (laughs) Very close. Uh, I guess you'd have to reference something in nature in order for it to be truly haiku. I I suppose, but yeah. uh, I don't know. I it's just so pretty, so pretty. Yeah, Roland, you're awesome. Yeah. I think he was referencing something in Carl's nature with that. Anti-pen. You think? I wasn't gonna <laughs> go there. I was just enjoying the thing. That sounded like a me meta joke. Absolutely, <laughs> a, a mimic joke. Okay, and a meme meta joke. Mimic. There you go. Uh, Roland, you're awesome. I'm sending you a .NET Rocks mug. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet because they help us stop the bleeding. And now it's time to announce Steve Smith officially. He's an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. Steve's published several courses on Pluralsight covering DDD, solid design patterns, and software architecture. Steve's a Microsoft MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer. Steve's also one of the founders of DevIQ, a training technology company focused on improving software development teams. You can follow Steve online at rdallas.com, that's A-R-D-A-L-I-S, or at rdallas on Twitter. What is rdallas, Steve? rdallas is a character name I came up with, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so for role-playing game uh, that I used for some online games and stuff too, because amazingly... Steve Smith is not usually available as a username That's online. That's really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but but our Dallas usually is available, so cool. That's where that came from. And and it's not a, a name from any other game or anything like that. Like it's a completely original name. No, like yeah, it. I made it up myself, and the domain was available, and so yeah, That's, you own it. That's great. That's awesome. He, he was a he was a paladin character uh, in a fantasy role playing game back yeah. in the day. Our Dallas sounds like a name of a paladin. I'd buy that. Hmm. Okay. So, we were having this discussion in Las Vegas, and uh, it happened to be in a bar, but, you know, that's just because we were there. And we started talking about, well, we we landed on this idea of business anti-patterns, but it was just about experiences with startups and with uh, businesses that make the same kind of mistakes over and over again as businesses. And wouldn't it be cool if we could, as developers, spot those anti-patterns happening in our own businesses, whether they're ours or whether we're working for someone else, so that we can maybe do something about it? Yeah. And that's I think that's the value of anti-patterns and patterns in general is that when you can describe them and, and refer to them by some name, and, and I don't think we've gone quite so far as to give these things names, but mm. but maybe we can discuss that as well. Uh, it, it gives you a, a better language for talking about things that are that are in common, and it helps others to recognize the same pattern when when they see it, you know, in a different situation. It's also a little more polite than saying, "Here's why you suck," you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which is what most people do when they find somebody's doing something 
that uh, they think is an anti-pattern, the most typical reaction is negative. And, you know, it's just good to have a name for these things to recognize we're doing them so that we can improve ourselves. I think it's very productive. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember some of the specific ones that we talked about last week. Um, but I did create a, a sort of list of them here that that I would be prepared to discuss, along with some some anecdotes and stories. And I'm sure that uh, yeah. Carl, you and Richard have you know your own stories that you could share as well. Sure. Uh, and and I expect that listeners can offer a few in their comments too. Sure. So what do you got? Well, one of the biggest ones that I I see, and and I did talk to some other people as well, and I've and I've personally you know run a few businesses and and worked for a few different companies, so. Uh, I don't want any of these to to necessarily be applied to a particular employer or a particular company because you know some of these stories are mine and some of them are from others. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one that I see is just overselling and and exaggerating. Uh, and of course, this is something salespeople love to do. Right. Uh, but for our industry, the one that that I've seen cause more problems in terms of turnover and poor employee satisfaction is exaggerating the benefits of the organization to employees, uh, either right before you hire them or, or even after they've been part of the team for a while, mm. uh, such that, you know, they tend to be disappointed with the actual, you know, benefits or, or, or whatever compensation package, uh, once it actually materializes or, or if it ever does, sometimes it's like you keep promising them something and, and it never actually comes to fruition. Right. Well, there's lots of folks who talk about how great their company culture is. And then after you spent six weeks there, you're like, so where was that culture thing you were talking about? Exactly. And, and, and the culture, you know, sometimes if the culture is the biggest thing they're, they're touting for, for a company, this is common, I think, especially with startups, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of a, a, you know, a stand in for the fact that they don't have anything else to tell you <laughs> about why you want to work there. Sure. We got no money and we got no job security and our idea is just not that good, but our culture is amazing. And we got this killer exactly. YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, this is similar to, you know, the, the whole idea of moving the goalposts, um, where, where maybe you've got a specific incentive that the employees are trying to reach. And every time they get close to it, the management will, will push it back further. Um, so, so they, they never actually get to the, the goal that they're trying to, to achieve. Um, you know, and, and that can be a, a variant of this, but in other cases, it's just where, you know, you've been promised something, um, and, and it just never, never materializes. It's never actually yeah. given. And, and right. this is one of those things where you, you probably want to get those in writing. Yeah. When you, it's almost the big lie model, right? Like someday we'll have the win. You just have to work this weekend. Mm. Right. Mm. I definitely got pulled into a company uh, that was, it was an acquisition, but it was very much an aqua hire. And it was, the, these were contractors for a business that I was working closely with. And as it seemed like they were faltering to some degree, it was like, we're going to, we're going to recruit them. And it, and they had been on a death march for like a year with moving goalposts. So lots of work weekends and so forth. And, and as we were coming in there talking to the, to the principal, the guy who's now owns it, he goes, what would you do first? I says, I think I'd send everybody home today. Like give wow. them a long weekend, do exactly the opposite of right. what's been going on. It's Thursday. Say, do not come in tomorrow and do not come in this weekend. And hell, don't come in on Monday. On yeah. Tuesday, let's talk. Right. Because, you know, first, breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes nothing is the right thing to do. And that's very hard for management to understand. 
Oh, sure. And you think about it, he's just spent all this money. He's just completed this deal. Like, he wants to get going. And it's right. like, these guys have been going for a while. You actually want to get their attention and, and make sure it's not more of the same. Do the opposite of what's been happening to them. How about the pattern of just doing thorough research before um, before making a decision? I mean, that can apply in so many different ways. It can apply to technology stacks that you choose. It can apply to customers that you partner with. Um uh, you know, due diligence, essentially, and not basing it on somebody's gut instinct who happens to have a good track record or or uh, what somebody told you who has a good reputation, you know. Yeah, being able to do that kind of due diligence is, is definitely important, although it's it's sometimes the case that you'll end up in an analysis paralysis where you, you never actually make a choice because, you know, there's there's so many different frameworks or there's so many different options that you can get mired down. So it's useful to, to time box how much research you'll do and then have a deadline uh, when you need to make a decision. And then the, that means that you better be researching in the right places. Don't be, you know, make your, make your research stronger. In other words, the, the sources of your fact checking should be as close to the metal as possible. Actually doing good research is super hard, right? Like actually qualifying sources well to make sure you know, you know where their information is coming from and, and what's important and what isn't important. That it takes a lot of time. I think most people don't even know how to get started on that problem. And I think it depends on what we're talking about researching. Like if you're trying to research whether or not a particular framework will work for your web application, you know, you can just read some blogs, download the stuff off GitHub, maybe, you know, do a quick spike. If you're trying to research, you know, which uh, business to business partner is going to work best for your organization so that you can, you know, leverage their connections to to maximize your profits, that gets to be a little bit more difficult uh, sure. to, to put in concrete terms. Well, I think both are hard, but they're different. I, I would happily tackle both of them. Say we're just trying to figure out a data binding strategy on a web page. Like if you just go look for data binding JavaScript libraries, there are dozens. So, you know, first off, it's like, okay, the paradox of choice kicks in. You're not going to be able to test all of these, and you still have to make a decision. So, you've got to dial it back. So, now I got to go look at some rating services and say, what are the top five? I was just about to say, this is where ratings comes in really handy. Yeah. We use it all the time when we're searching for products, right? I, I will only buy things that have, you know, four or five star ratings. And I look at the negative reviews too, because sometimes there'll be, you know, 50 five star reviews of something and two or three one star reviews and nothing in between. And the one star reviews are, um, this is complete crap. The, all these 50 reviews are, you know, planted. Here's what actually happens. And they show a picture of something, you know, that kind of thing happens. You really have to be careful, but reviews are, or what it's all about for me. Well, and I like low rating ones typically have a specific thing was missing, right? Or some capability isn't there that was important to them may not be important to anybody else. Right. But it might be important to you. So I totally buy into this. Read that. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's a showstopper for me. I'm, it doesn't matter how good or bad the product is. It doesn't do X. I can't use it. And then there's the one star ratings that are like, the thing showed up broken and there's one guy like, okay, that's going to yeah. happen. Let that go. Let that go. Yeah, that's specific to his instance. It's not actually an assessment of the product. Right. Well, and, and products by their nature are more of a commodity. Yeah. Right. I mean, there might be this or that feature that you were hoping it had, or it might show up broken, but at the end of the day, it's a widget that you can buy. Whereas like a, a framework that you're going to try and use to apply to your specific software, 
is a whole different thing. And, and the chance that it fits perfectly to what your needs are, or, or that someone else's needs are, are a good map to yours, are, are pretty slim. Something that, in, in the specific case of frameworks, that you can do is, you know, you can make a choice that you want to pick something that is uh, new and cool and, and going to help your resume and sort of do resume-driven development. Yes. Uh, and maybe it also gives you some job security if you're the only guy at your organization that knows that. Um, you know, that might be a decision you make. That might be an anti-pattern for the business, uh, but I see lots of individual developers who, you know, probably rightly make that choice uh, for themselves as a, as a good choice, you know, that helps them. And if they happen to pick something that becomes the next big thing, then that's good. But that's awesome. that's kind of a big risk. For, for the company, I think really it's better to bet on the thing that has the most mind share, uh, because even if it's not perfect, it means that you can hire somebody, whether it's a contractor or a full-time hire, that knows that product. You know, if, if, if you are building something in jQuery or Angular, you know, jQuery is getting a little long in tooth at this point, but, but Angular, even Angular 1, everybody that's doing JavaScript programming is at least familiar with and is, has run across Angular and, and could pick it up with all the resources available online. Right. Whereas if you pick some, you know, new GitHub project that's the new hotness that nobody's ever heard of before, it's going to be a lot harder to find somebody off the street that knows it. Right. Now, on the partnership side of this equation, I think the biggest challenge here, and, and if find the same issue when, for example, hiring. It's what metrics actually matter. You know, hiring off the back of a resume seems suicidal these days. I actually going to look at your list of skills and that's why I'm going to hire you. I'm more interested in how well you work with my team and your willingness to learn, knowing none of these skills on these paper is going to be relevant a year from now. And your attention to detail. Very important. Yes. Mm -hmm. And those are things that that you can't necessarily train or you don't want to train for. Like I've worked with folks that we've hired where they were in a position where they had to communicate with customers and they just didn't have good command of English and grammar right. and, and attention to detail like spelling to the point where we're like, you know, purchasing books on elements of style and, you know, hoping that that will help. It's, it's probably too late if you've got a, a college educated hire uh, well, it doesn't really matter if they have a college degree, but you have an adult that you've hired, you know, they're, they're past high school, they're past college. If they don't understand it by now how to how to write proper English, uh, you're probably not going to be teaching them that in, in whatever role it is that you've hired them for. I, I, I want to, I think I could rephrase that a little bit for you, Steve, too. If they haven't valued communicating effectively by now, they're not going to. Right. And to be clear, I'm talking about folks where English is their is their primary and only language. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of, of people that, that speak English as a second language around the world. And, you know, it, it's, it's totally okay if their English isn't, you know, at, at a native level, especially spoken. Um, but, you know, obviously, like Richard said, if communication is a priority and, and being, you know, an excellent communicator is a priority, that's, that's something that doesn't usually just change as you switch from one job to another. Sure. And I think it's important as an employer to be aware of what your people are passionate about. I It is foolish to take, you know, somebody productive in one area and make them non-productive in another area. Hey, I'm going to give you a promotion. You write this awesome code. Now I want you to manage the customer. And that is just not something they're excited about or particularly good at. You know, now you've got a double whammy. They're messing up the job you gave them and they're no longer doing the job they were good at. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's like, you know, promote them until they're no longer effective. Peter Principle. Is that the, the Peter Principle? Yeah, yeah, promote to the level of incompetence. Well, and I, I appreciate organizations where they recognize that 
management of a problem and and execution or operations on a problem are two different sets of skills, both valuable, you know, and really parallel so that you can grow in the company and not have to take on customer management responsibilities or even necessarily team management responsibilities. Right. And in our industry, it's nice if you're in an organization where there is a career path that recognizes technical merit and you're able to grow through the ranks of the organization and re- remain technical and not be forced to move into management right. um, just in order to, to progress in your career. And I would also say if you do want to skip to management, and some people do, right? I mean, I've sort of hit a point in my career where I'm not all that concerned with proving my programming chops anymore. I've built a lot of code. I'm a lot, I enjoy working with other people, helping them be successful. I think I've grown into being a manager, but doing that meant I actually moved over to a job many years ago where I just wasn't as good at it as I was at the old job. So you, you got to kind of take a step backwards when you change roles like that. Yeah, very true. So another, another anti-pattern just to change subjects for a moment is this notion of constantly creating emergencies and, and I've. I've seen this in, in multiple organizations. Sometimes it's the it's the way the organization works, and sometimes it's the way individuals work. But where, you know, usually it's because of a lack of communication. Uh, but but every time they communicate from from their team to your team, let's say, it's an emergency. Like right. oh my gosh, this 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 thing has got to happen right now. It's you know you got to drop everything. You got to take care of this. It's you know the customer is on the phone. He's angry, and that usually is a result of. They didn't set expectations well. They didn't yep. communicate to you earlier that this thing was going to be necessary. Yep. You know, whatever whatever it might be, you know, they've created this emergency situation where now everyone's running around with their hair on fire and, and having to work late and, you know, having death march projects and things oh, like I hate, that. I hate it when that happens. Yeah. And and sometimes that's systemic and, and it's just a it's one of those things where you you've got to change your organization or change your organization. Right, yeah. Uh if if you can't get away from that unless you enjoy, you know, being in a constant state of stress. I have this um, principle in my life, which I observe in that the cream usually rises to the top. In other words, you know, the people who are out there picking out the patterns and pointing them out and, you know, ha ha, I told you so, all that kind of stuff, they're doing themselves a disservice rather than just, uh, you know, seeing, seeing what happens, the, the, the awesome decisions have a big impact. The people who make those decisions get rewarded. The people who make the bad res- uh, decisions tend to, uh, go away after a while. And therefore, you know, you have this sort of self-selecting thing. But I, I also find that the people who are creating emergencies, after a while, after people realize that these aren't such big emergencies, they become impervious to the call of, we have to do something. You get numb to it. Yeah. And, and then eventually there is a real emergency and, you, and you're just numb to that as well. Exactly. Right. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Yep. And and the the problem, of course, is like if, if it's your peer that's always trying to create emergencies, you know, if it's the developer next to you, or you know, you're a team lead and this other team lead is is that type of of style, then then yeah, you might become numb to it and ignore it. If it's your boss, if it's your supervisor, if it's yeah. your your CEO that that is operating like this, then that just becomes a whole different matter for the organization. 
You know, the positive spin on that is at least they're communicating. I mean, I might they're communicating hysterically, but at least they're communicating. They also deal with organizations where, like, this is, you know, there is no more information given to you than exactly what we want you to work on at the time. Like, no context, no idea of what comes next. Just do this thing, then report back to me. Yeah, and so many of these, I think, really are communication issues um, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So, you know, be be honest, be forthright. And, and communicate that in a timely manner with the people that need to know what they need to know in order to do their job. You know, that's, that's the basics of, of it. And, and so many of these, these stories or these anti-patterns are, you didn't do that. And here's the consequence. Right. A lot of organizations will like to claim uh, that their people come first, where, whether it's the, the CEO or, or the HR department. Um, but then at the end of the day, when, when a customer comes along that is toxic, rather than fire the customer, they will throw their team under the bus and and tell the team that they have to you know go through heroics to to try and meet this you know unreasonable customer's demands, mm-hmm. regardless of of the effect that has on the team's morale or or what have you. Yeah, if and and, and we've all been in situations where a customer has demands that that may require some extra effort. That's that's just part of of doing business. Um, the difference is when you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth and you're and you're telling the the team that you know we will put you first. We will get rid of customers if they're not doing, you know, the right thing. And then you don't do that. And then you don't follow right. through. And it's, it's that lack of integrity that, that becomes the issue that causes the morale to drop and, and turn over to spike. That works internally too, right? The, the whole no a-holes rule that is like, you can have one bad, you know, toxic person on a team can undermine the productivity of the whole team. And then it eventually becomes a, how come management doesn't even see that this person is being destructive to the whole team? That yeah. creates an even more negative cycle. Yeah. Right. And, and you start wondering, like, what kind of dirt does this person have on management that management nope. hasn't gotten rid of them yet? <laughs> yeah, why are you still here? <laughs> but, yeah, it, you know, again, it's the, you get into this cycle of, of questioning people's integrity, and that can be very, very poisonous to a work environment. Well, and so much of, of working with other people, I mean, you're spending 40 plus hours a week with, with these folks. Trust is, is huge. And, you know, most people have some degree of trust with their team members because that's who they see every day and that's who they work with. And ideally they trust their, their supervisor, their boss, their, their management team. Um, but in a lot of companies, that's just, that's been eroded by, by these types of things. And when you don't have that trust, then, you know, your employees get cynical. They, they start looking for exits. They start cutting corners and, you know, they don't do their job as effectively as if they had some trust in the organization to, to stand by them and do what they were promised. Right. For sure. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. It's time to create a humor emergency. Please, someone else tell my jokes for me. I got nothing. <laughs> hey, at least I'm communicating, right? <laughs> That's it. Maybe a little hysterically. <laughs> uh, well, we just interviewed Mark Miller, so I got a little frenetic on me. Yeah, it uh, sticks to you. Yeah. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription, speaking of Mark Miller, from Developer Express. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation 
touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Henrik Svenel. Congratulations, Henrik. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes. Golf clap for Henrik. And uh, Henrik just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. If you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you gotta sign up to win. All right, Steve, you know the drill. You got five grand, you're going shopping. Has anything changed in 40 shows? Oh, uh, I'm I'm still hoping that someday if I, if I win enough of these $5,000 drawings that I'll be able to afford my own Tesla. Ah, there you go. It's going to take a lot. Okay. Yeah. I, I just put it toward that. That's fair. Not a HoloLens? I'm not that keen on the HoloLens until they get a wider field of view. Yeah. Uh, yeah although the mean. new, uh, the new Surface Studio is very is, pretty. What? 30, 3,500 or something. That looks yeah, fully nice. loaded for 42. Yeah, yeah. 42 tops out. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that would be nice as a toy, but I, yeah, it, I it, think it's exactly the, the kind of thing you'd win as a prize. I don't feel like I want to spend that much money myself because I'm not sure I'm the right customer for it, but it is very pretty to look at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not particularly good at drawing things. So, you know, I, I don't think I'm the right uh, audience for it, but it is pretty. All right. Should we dive back into this? It's been a fun filled show so far. <laughs> yeah, it has. I'm just trying to figure out how to talk smack about my customers without them actually knowing who they are. Oh, that'll work out well. <laughs> I've certainly found in some organizations that the process of trying to do team building can become toxic too. You sort of get that us versus them mentality inside of the company. And actually, team building exercise as a whole, like you talk about trust before the break there, Steve. Like I like, I think trust is super important and very tough to grow while you're at work. So, you know, uh, doing other things where folks can collaborate together, this, that team can get together to do something else, that seems to be a more effective way to build the trust. I just want it to be real and not too silly. Right. Well, and so many team building things, depending on the organization, are maybe appropriate for some members of the, the team, but not others. Like, you know, there's there's some organizations or companies or teams where their idea of, of enjoying themselves consists of nothing but, you know, going someplace and being drunk. Um, and other folks might want to do something else. And, you know, maybe they want to go see some sports event or, you know, those two can often be combined. Uh, but, you know, depending <laughs> on your on your team, there might be a, a variety of different things um, that they might want to want to do. And you want to make sure that it's not just being an edict from on high that says, okay, we're all going to, you know, the Vegas casinos for a team building exercise. Yeah. And, you know, your your team has a, a large group of people that are totally against casinos and gambling. You need to recognize that whatever activities you're planning should be appealing to the people that you're planning them for. Carl is aware of this in me, but I will normally avoid fiercely competitive environments because you don't want to see that version of me. <laughs> Uh, and I'm thinking about what was, where would we end up on that racetrack? 
Race tra- Oh yeah, that was at in Chicago actually. It was in Chicago. Speaking of the Cubs, it was and uh I, yeah. And I went uh, uh-oh cuz yeah, you get me in a race car, that's not the best version of me. So here's an anti pattern, absolutism. I hate yes. it. I always hate it. I'll never stop hating it. <laughs> 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 um basically the idea is is a walking a line between guidelines and science and science has created guidelines for various things. I'm thinking of, you know, Mark Miller's science of great UI mm-hmm. and he came up with guidelines. Well, those aren't apt to change because our biology isn't apt to change all that much over time, right? Within our lifetime, but things that do change, you know, especially with technology change so fast, you sort of have to constantly be testing um, your assumptions and trying to drill them down. And if you have guidelines, they absolutely need to be constantly revisited and constantly re-researched to see that they're still valid. Well, I and I'm freaked out by absolutism of any kind, right? Because the world is not absolute. There are gray values to all that. Right. You know, they, they talk about things like they, uh, there's the, the distance between the ear and the mouth has never changed. So, you know what the shape of a phone should be. Mm-hmm. But we know that not to be true because granted, the distance hasn't changed, but the technology changed. So you just didn't have to be that close. Right. Right. It, as soon as somebody's absolutely certain about something, it's almost a guarantee they're wrong. Yep. Yep. Especially the longer they've been certain about it. Yeah. That's a Mark Twain quote, right? It's not what you don't know, it's what you 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 know ain't so. So that gets me to another anti-pattern which is old pain. It's related, okay? But you see this in the .net community right now. You're seeing people making decisions about whether to embrace .net based on when .net meant Windows and my, the you know Microsoft being um a sort of a, a monolith that wanted everybody to use Windows, and uh, that has completely changed. Now .NET is about going everywhere, being open source, and uh, more about the languages uh, than the platform. In fact, it's not at all about the platform. It's about every platform. So that now people are, and I have had this experience recently, as you probably know, that more uh, people are basing whether to embrace.net based on five years ago, which granted, I would have said, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to assume you don't want to get locked in. But uh, now embracing.net is sort of the opposite of getting locked in. Not only is it outperforming everything else, but it goes everywhere. So you don't have to be in Azure. You don't have to be in Windows. You can be running, you can be writing C sharp in a Linux container on Amazon and uh, running rings performance wise around other uh, similar technologies on the same cloud platform. Right. And down at rocks as a result, probably you, you have a lot of new listeners, you know, maybe this is their first show they're listening to where, you know, they've, they've started listening to .NET rocks, even though they're coming from a Linux Mac, you know, non-Microsoft background, because now with .NET core, uh, you know, it, it runs everywhere. Yeah. And it runs faster than everything else. <laughs> but in, but in the interest of complete transparency, when you jump back five years ago, so 2011, yeah, that first build, yeah. I mean, you, let's talk about what actually happened. Yeah. We came out of that build going, Holy man, we make a show called .NET Rocks, and Microsoft just did a conference where they never said the word .NET once. Yeah, and we stood up another show. We stood up the tablet show. That's right. 
you know, because we, we were genuinely concerned. But as it a few years went by, I think it was three, we yes, realized it changed. Well, and yes, and focus sort of reasserted itself on these things. And and it became, I hit a point as a content planner between Donnell Rocks and the Tableau Show where it became very silly trying to decide what to do and what show. Right. You know, it was just like, uh, it turns out Tableau development, mobile development, it's just development. It's just development. Yeah. So put it to back together again. And that's why we have three shows a week. Right. So there, there you go. There's absolutism combined with um, old pain. Yep. Yep. Move on. Yeah. Yeah. We got to well and and be be willing to be wrong, right? Just to sort of have that reevaluation and say situation is different now. Yeah, it's funny how much old pain has come up with us for the past few years. Yeah. in our shows because an awful lot of stuff has shifted in a way that your your old belief system is now holding you back. Yeah, that's right. And hey, that that happens in everything, and it happens. It's happened um, in nutrition with me, for example. Years of having. Uh, uh, everybody and their brother telling you not to eat fat, that's just dissolving now today. I mean, the science is coming out all over the place that says that was based on bad science and one guy is behind the whole reason that the government mandated uh, a low-fat diet and look where it got us. So, that kind of, those kinds of built-in habits are just very hard to break in the face of obvious changing science. Well, and it's also not that obvious. Ob you know, Confirmation bias is an incredibly powerful force. Once you've made up your mind about something, you can find many ways to confirm that it's true. Yeah, over I suppose, and over and I over suppose that's true. Right? And so, it's like, it's not just we one person fooled everybody once. No, no, it's no. It became systemic. Yeah, because of confirmation bias. Yeah. Because we don't go back to core principles and, re and revisit facts, so forth. Because it takes a long time to do that. Right. We're, we're trying to move forward. But, you know, it turns out the more fundamental a decision is, the more time we should probably spend examining whether or not it's true. Because all, all sorts of decisions are going to be based on those fundamental understandings and decisions. Don't you think? Yeah. Well, and that's why... That's why industry knows that it's much more effective for them to do a study, you know, pay for a study that then is going to get picked up by, uh, you know, the Food and Drug Administration and, and cited as the, the, the way to do things right. than it is for them to spend billions on ad advertising. Right. Like if you can get an authority, if you can influence an authority and have that authority endorse your worldview, that's going to have a lot more influence than if you try and sell people directly with your, with your marketing resources, right. you know, using traditional advertising. Yeah. So there, the other thing to do when looking at science and studies is to follow who paid for them, you know, follow the money. And that, right. that being said, because we've done the shows around it, yeah. the FDA mandates that these companies do these studies yeah, too. That's true. So you've got to actually see that whole path. Like the, yep. the FDA doesn't do its own research. It makes the companies that want to be able to do things do the research and publish the paper. And you also have to look at conflicts of interest like the USDA. The USDA is supposedly the ones that um, tell us what to eat, but at the same time, they're the ones that govern the food industry. So, you know, there's inherent. So what I'm saying is you have to follow the money. You have to see who's doing the science. You have to determine whether they're uh, objective or not. And that should inform your, your decisions. But getting back to the absolutism thing that, you know, you always have to be willing 
as a scientist, and let's face it, that's what we are in business. We're, we're business scientists. We're constantly analyzing our environment, constantly analyzing our decisions. You have to be willing to say we could be totally wrong and need to change course. Well, and, and speaking of following the money and, and trying to bring that back to the business anti-patterns topic, you know, benefits and compensation are, are two areas where both the employees and the employers often make, make missteps that aren't necessarily in their best interest. Um, for instance, one that, that was popular a couple years ago, might still be popular in some parts of the country, is the idea of having no vacation policy. And, you know, employees can take time off whenever they want. I've seen that backfire uh, even though I've never worked at a company that had that policy, uh, where the employees don't know when they can actually take time off or there's, you know, unwritten rules about when they can actually do it and whether yeah. or not it's approved. Yeah. And then when you, when you leave that company, you don't have any accrued vacation, right? Like mm. that's, that's awesome you, for the employer. Yeah. You never did get around to taking time off because you didn't know what to do. And now yeah. they, cause they weren't accruing it. Right. Mm. And so when, when they get their final paycheck, they aren't getting paid out for however many days of vacation they would have earned over yeah. the past eight months or whatever since they last took a vacation. Like It's like, sorry, we don't have a vacation policy. You got nothing. The um, I'm a big fan of the RSA motivation video on YouTube. That oh, just yeah. This idea that, and I think it's absolutely throughout the programming industry because for the most part, software developers are fairly well paid compared to most other industries. And money just stops motivating them. It's just not the thing. Past a certain threshold, this was the principle in the RSA video, is past a certain threshold, it ain't about the money anymore. It's about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yep. Awesome. Awesome video. Well, and, you know, the funny thing is we're sort of talking around this, but Carl and I came to your office, Steve, back in the day. And, and I sort of watched that in action because you were doing team building exercises. It was just, it was the kind of team building exercises that geeks really enjoy, which was, you know, playing werewolf and their variations of that yep. card games and things like that. And that they did have, you know, I saw all three things that folks worked quite autonomously, that they were trying to, you know, improve their skills and had room to do that and that they knew what they were doing while they were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a great team. Um, both at, at Nimble Pros and later at Telerik, and and really, uh, my wife Michelle gets most of the credit for for a lot of the policies that we had in place that that really worked really well for us. I believe we interviewed her on exactly that subject. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think we have a, a team building show on Donut Rocks from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we would do stuff like have lunch once a week, and and during you know parts of the year when there's nice weather, which. In Ohio is, you know, a few months, um, you know, we would, we would cook out and have picnics and throw around a Frisbee or toss a football or, or whatever folks were into. And, and, you know, that downtime and, and sort of bound it bonding was, was great. And that was, you know, just a, a way for people to, to get to know each other, you know, sort of outside of work, but, you know, literally just I agree that lunchtime is sort of the, the one time in a work day that isn't actually work. And it's like arguably the best time to build trust in a team is break bread together. You know, the corollary is also true. When I see a team that won't eat together, there's probably something seriously wrong with that team. Yeah. Kind of hardwired in our, you know, in those lizard brains of ours is this, the people I eat with are people I trust. Right. 
And and you have to be careful because, you know, sometimes folks want to do what they want to do at lunch. Like, that's their time. So, you don't necessarily want to dictate that, hey, uh, every Tuesday we're going to uh, force you to, to do this mandatory team training instead of your lunch. Right. Um, and, yep. and make sure you pack a lunch because we're not going to provide one for you. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> probably not going to win hearts and minds from your organization. I would also say in our industry, we have a lot of real introverts and I don't see that as a liability, but you have to deal with that. Introverts basic measure is like they need alone time to recharge their batteries. Mm, that right. might be lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, that being said, as a manager, if I'm not having lunch with someone and having an opportunity to communicate with someone on sort of a one-to-one -one basis, I'm wasting a meal. Like that, that is, those are rare opportunities and they're extremely valuable. Yeah, that's true, and that's that's a good point. I, I I just hope we can end this on more of a positive note because it's, <laughs> it it's is kind an of a anti pattern dark, show. It is an anti pattern show, but I'd, I'd like to throw in a couple of pro patterns. Like I've been surprised on just how much benefit you get about bringing a box of donuts to the office. Hey, now that's diabetes. There you go. <laughs> bringing a box of cheese crisps to the there office. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Pepperoni sticks. Yeah. We had a position that we were hiring for, for uh, an office admin receptionist type person. Uh, and we put in uh, an ad in the local paper and, and we got a ton of response, like a couple hundred responses within a couple of days. Wow. Uh, like six, seven years ago. And one person showed up with a pizza and their resume stuck to the, to the box. And, you know, that, that one stood out. Like that was, yeah, that was awesome. Kidding. Like there's a lot of, of resumes and, and this one showed up with food uh, and it was good pizza too. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and unfortunately we didn't end up hiring that person, but, but I still remember them. And yes. if you want to make sure that you stand out, you know, little things like that, especially if it's, you know, something everybody appreciates, like some food um, can be a great way to, to stand out from the crowd. If you're trying to, to get that new position. You know, I once, uh, I had a, I had a bad car that I bought. This is many, many, many years ago. And there was one service tech that really busted his hump to try and get my car fixed. And when he cracked it, I sent that service team pizza. I think it cost me $100, huh. right? Let me tell you about how well my car got serviced after uh, Yeah, it's true. Like, nobody ever forgets yeah. a, a kind gesture like that. It, it, it leaves an indelible impression. And it really is the thought. Like, it shows that you're thinking, that you're thoughtful, whether it's pizza or not. I mean, it just shows that you thought enough to to say something. Yeah. To, to people, I, I, I make a very point of being nice to people who usually get yelled at. Case in point, when my wife and I got married, we decided to have a housewarming party. I remember. In Connecticut at our house. And then in the middle of the party, we announced, and I believe it was you, Richard, that announced that you were going to marry us. And my friend Steve Smith and his wife Michelle came to the housewarming party not knowing it was going to be a wedding, but they came anyway. And my wife still says to this day, when the pictures come up over the mantle, that was so nice that they came all the way from Ohio to a housewarming party. Like, we remember that. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we don't get to see you all that often. I mean, I do because I'm at conferences and stuff. But, yeah. you know, Michelle doesn't have that many opportunities to hang out. And we, you know, we, we wanted to have that that chance to to be there. And, it, and it, you know, amazingly, it worked out with our schedule. So, yeah. you know, and, and we were surprised and, and it was awesome to be there for, for you and Kelly's wedding, too. Yeah, so. it, was, it was great. Speaking of of being kind, that reminds me of a quote that I like from the from the Dalai Lama, actually, 
which is be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. <laughs> ah, that's great. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, we can leave it there if you like, or if you've got another one, go right ahead. Um, no, I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Although I would like to remind people that uh, the 2017 Software Craftsmanship calendar is on sale now, if that's all right. Yeah. Where can they get that? Yeah, so they can they can get it from store.deviq.com. And it's available both in a print version as usual, as well as a digital image pack that you can use for your computer desktop or presentations or, or things like that. Also, Mark Miller's uh, epic video training course, The Science of Great UI, is uh, is uh, through DevIQ. How's that going? Yeah, um, we just launched that uh during Dev Intersection, I guess last week, uh, although it'll be a few weeks ago when the show airs, yeah, and uh, and it's it's great. Uh, I've I've been watching it myself, and and Mark did a tremendous job on this course. I'm like I've been a Pluralsight author for some time, and I'm really blown away by the by the level to which he took this. So um, definitely, if whether you're a developer or a designer uh, or even you know just a product owner, I highly recommend uh, checking out his course, The Science of Great UI, which is on DevIQ.com. Yeah, very cool. Well, uh, Steve, thanks again. It's been great. It's always great talking to you, and uh, this one was particularly fun. All right. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Richard. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a